you for the introduction. Um, thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak this morning. Um, I'm not particularly eloquent or polished, and I had a presentation ready, and then I realized part of it wasn't what I really wanted to communicate this morning, so um, I had to change up some things. So please forgive me if it's not perfectly smooth or connected, but I will try my best. And so I, I know I need prayer, and so I ask that you would bow your heads with me as I pray one last time before I speak. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning just thanking you for your many blessings, and we want to ask for your Holy Spirit's presence. Speak through me this morning, Lord. Um, make your message clear and help us to love you and to serve you better as a result of this message. Um, Lord, help us to see your love and your character better as a result of today. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, King James I of England once decided he'd try his hand at being a judge. So, he worked it out with some of the magistrates in, the, in England, and, um, and he was assigned a court case. And so, in came the defendants, the prosecutor, the witnesses, and... Um, and so the prosecutor began, you know, began his, you know, his d discourse, um, and the, you know, King of England, James, goes, that makes sense. And then the defense begins their defense, and he's like, hmm, but that makes sense too. And then it goes back and forth, and at the end of it, he declares, you know, I don't know what to think. I don't know what to believe. Um, he truly was, was confused. He's like, once one party spoke, I could get on very, this is what he said, I could get on very well hearing one side only, but when both sides have been heard by my soul, I know not which is right. Personally, I don't think I'd want him for my judge. <laughs> and in general, um, being in court is not something which we look forward to. However, the Bible writers speak of a judgment in which they anticipated, a judgment which they looked forward to. We can find this in Psalm chapter 96. So turn with me to Psalm 96. This will be a good old-fashioned Bible study, so please pull out your Bible. You will be using it. Psalm chapter 96, starting in verse 11. Can I hear an amen if you're there? Amen. Have mercy if you're not. Amen. Psalm 96, starting in verse 11. Let the heavens rejoice. And let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar and the fullness thereof. Let the field be joyful and all that is therein. Then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice before the Lord. For he cometh, for he cometh to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. Now there's a few things we can notice about this passage. One, that the earth is rejoicing. The heavens are rejoicing, and that we can rejoice with this. I think in another passage, it talks about the earth groans with the weight of sin and its consequences on, on the natural world. But here we see that the earth rejoices when Christ comes to judge. And he comes to judge the earth, and he judges with righteousness, and the people with his truth. So his truth is the standard of the judgment. Let's continue. Acts chapter 17, verse 31. Here Paul tells us something more about the judgment. 
Acts chapter 17, verse 31. And this is when Paul is standing in Athens. Here he is on Mars Hill in the Oropagus, talking to the sages and wise men of ancient Greece. And here he's making a case for the unknown God, the God that they don't know that, that, but whom he has come to tell them about. And as he's coming to the conclusion of his discourse, he says the following, and the times of this ignorance God winked at when you served the unknown God not knowing who you were serving, but now commandeth all men to re everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked and others said, we'll hear thee again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. So here, Paul says, there is a day of judgment, a specific time that God has appointed, and that he has appointed Jesus to be the judge because he raised Jesus from the dead, signifying and sealing that decision. But who, who's involved in this judgment? Turn to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, just a couple books over. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. I'm going to start in verse 9. Wherefore we labor that, whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. So here we see that everyone appears in front of this judgment seat, whether we believe it or not, whether we like it or not. Whoever we are, we're held accountable for the decisions of our lives. The Bible says, so then, each of us shall give account of himself to God. In Romans chapter 14, verse 12. If you'll turn there, we'll actually start in verse 10. Romans chapter 14, verses 10 through 12. Amen. Have mercy. Have mercy, I heard mercy. 14. Chapter 14, starting in verse 10. Oh, I, oh man, I, I love this. For to this end, Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and the living. But why dost thou judge thy brother? And why dost thou set at naught thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Here, Paul's making a case. He's like, why are you condemning and judging each other? He's like, don't you know? Haven't you heard that we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ? And on this, this particular passage makes especially good sense when it's considered in the context of the Sanhedrin and the Jewish judicial system. Because in the Sanhedrin, if a witness came to the Sanhedrin, and he witnessed, and you know, someone paid him, bribed him, he witnessed falsely, and he was shown to be a false witness in the Sanhedrin. It was according to the law of Moses that he should suffer the punishment that he was trying to bring on the other, on the defendant. So that's, that was one very big deterrent against witnessing falsely under oath in the Jewish judicial system, because if you were found out to be lying, you'd get the punishment you wanted the other person to get. And so here he's like, you know, why are you, why are you judging each other? Why are you, you know, coming to court against each other as it were? Um, you know, for don't you know that you'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ? And that's like the ultimate court. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, Every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, every one of us 
shall give account of himself to God. Everyone, without any exceptions. But the Bible also tells us a lot more about the judgment. It tells us not only that, that we will all be judged, but it also tells us details about how and when and, and what the standard of judgment is and, and who, who's, who's, in, who's in that courtroom, that heavenly courtroom. So let's start in Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. And here in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel's seeing a vision of beasts. And these beasts are later identified in the chapter, saying, you know, the fourth beast in verse 23, the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth. And so here Daniel is seeing beasts that represent kingdoms. And so he's seeing this progression of kings or kingdoms all the way down until he gets to verse 8. And he sees this little horn power in verse 8. And then in verse 9, immediately following that little horn power, I beheld till the thrones were cast down. Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. And the Ancient of Days did sit, excuse me, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. I beheld then, because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake, I beheld even till the beast was slain, and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. So here... And it's concerning the rest of the beasts. They had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So here we have a very, very interesting scene. We have a scene of a heavenly, uh, we, we have a scene that, of what looks like heaven, where we have God, the Father, or the Ancient of Days, seated upon his eternal throne and surrounded by countless angels. Notice what Daniel saw next in verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. So here we see the Son of God pictured standing before the Ancient of Days, very much like a courtroom scene on earth. Presiding is the Ancient of Days, or God the Father, there are witnesses, the holy angels who have seen and recorded everything. And standing before the throne is Jesus, man's advocate, because John said so in 1 John chapter 2. Turn to 1 John chapter 2. Amen. Any more have mercies? Amen. Okay. First John chapter two, verse one. My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have a what? Advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Did we just see the Father and Jesus in the same room in the picture in Daniel? Absolutely. So here we have another picture with Jesus acting as our advocate before the Father. Well, you say, everyone seems to be there except for those who are going to be tried. And in essence, that's true. However, take note to something that Daniel said in chapter 7, verse 10. He said the court was seated and the books were opened. So evidently, these books contain some records. 
of those who are standing trial. And we find further evidence of this if we turn to Ecclesiastes. And we're going to go chase down these books and see what's in these books. Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 9. Ecclesiastes 11, verse 9. Rejoice, O young man, in thy youth, and let thy heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth, and walk in the ways of thine heart, and in the sight of thine eyes. But know thou that for all these things, God will bring thee into judgment. Therefore, remove sorrow from thy heart and put away evil from thy flesh, for childhood and youth are vanity. Remember the Creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. And skipping down a few more verses in chapter 12, all the way down to the very end. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment and with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. So here, Solomon says that God's going to bring every work, every deed into judgment, including the ones that nobody else knows about, whether they're good or whether they're not. Jesus says the same thing in Matthew. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. Verses 36 and 37. But I say unto you, I still hear pages wrestling. Matthew chapter 12. Starting in verse 36. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. Here we have it mentioned again. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. So here, words are, are evidently part of that record that are looked at in the judgment. I also want you to take a quick note, as a side note, of verse 35. A good man out of the good things of the good treasure of the heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. So when the judgment judges based on good things and evil things, what's it really getting at, according to the verse right before that? It's getting at, a heart, at the heart. It's getting at the heart of the matter. A, a good heart or an evil one. I think the Bible has a lot to say about our heart and what, what it is naturally and how it is when Jesus comes into our lives. Because Jesus has this promise where he'll take a heart of stone out of, our, out of us, a heart that, that's cold, cruel, cares less about others than it cares about itself, and he'll give us a heart of flesh, one that's warm, one that's caring, one that will bring forth good deeds. But there's not just evil deeds recorded in the books in heaven. There's good deeds, too. Take a look at Malachi, chapter 3. Just turn back one book to the book of Malachi. Malachi chapter 3. 
Malachi chapter 3, verse 16. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it. And a book of what? Remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels. And I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Then shall ye return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. That's, that's what this is all, all about. Who do we serve? But here, as part of that deliberation, as part of that judgment, there's a book of remembrance that's written before the Lord. There's actually three books. There's three books written before God. I don't think I have the time to go into detail on all of them, but you have the book of remembrance here mentioned in Malachi. It's the book of the good deeds. It's a book where every where God marks down every word of encouragement that we give to someone else. God notices every time our hearts are drawn to him. And King David was also confident in this record keeping. But before we go there, this, this, is, all, this is the book of the good deeds, as it were, the book of remembrance. Then there's another book that records the evil deeds. And then there's a book called the Book of Life. And this one's mentioned in, I believe it's Philippians, when Paul writes that, um, that so-and-so and so-and-so whose names are in the Book of Life. And it's pretty clear from that scripture and a couple of others that talk about the Book of Life. I think Revelation also talks about the Book of Life. Um, that the book of life is the names of those who've given their life to Jesus, who've made a profession of following him, of Christianity. And, and if you want the mechanics of the judgment, this is the simplest way I can understand it. In the judgment, our entire character, our thoughts, our feelings, everything is represented for, before God. The good things in the book of remembrance, the bad things, and whether or not we profess to follow Christ, because it's all taken into account. And Paul, is it Paul that writes? No. It's Moses who's, who, when, when, when God says, Moses, depart from the people, I'm going to destroy Israel. Moses says, don't depart from Israel, but rather, you know, instead... I would rather that you blot my name out of your book. And so um, there's, there's two things that happen in the judgment. One is the blotting of our name out of the book of life. Or two, the blotting of our sins out of the, books, uh, out of, the book of our deeds. And so that's, that's pretty much... So the judgment is, you know, who did you serve? Who was, who was, who did you claim as master? And, and did you allow Jesus to work in your life? And if so, if you've accepted Jesus' blood and Jesus' pardon, then his blood covers our sins and they get blotted out. And the only thing left on the books, the only thing left is the good deeds in the book of remembrance and our names in the book of life. And that's like a picture. I just, I, I see that picture in my head and it's like, oh, God is so good. And, and because these books are a representation, a, a perfect transcript of our character, you can imagine, you know, if someone dies and, you know, their name comes up before the judgment and Christ says, they claimed my blood. The record of their character isn't in their brain who's turned to dust. 
It isn't in the neuronal connections that have now faded away in their body. The record of their character is in the books in heaven. And it's good deeds, bad deeds, book of life. And Jesus says, they claimed my blood. They followed me. They weren't perfect, but they followed me. And therefore, let us blot their sins out. And boom, sins are blotted out. And then at the resurrection, when Jesus recreates them, what's left in their character? That they followed him and the book of remembrance. It's just phenomenal. I, I just like, it, 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 when, you, when you look into the different books and how, how God works in the judgment, it's just phenomenal how he works on our behalf and how he takes everything into account. He takes, he takes into account all of our sorrows. In Psalm chapter 56, he's a fair and he's a just judge. Psalm chapter 56. Psalm chapter 56, verse 8. Thou tellest my wanderings. Put thou my tears into thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? Here David he recognized that God's record keeping was accurate. But more than that, that God recorded everything. God recorded the joys and the sorrows, the pain, the heartache, every injustice that we suffer. It's recorded in the books. And he'll make it right one day. I, I, I just love that. There's another, there's another verse in, in Psalms. Um, I'm trying to find it. I, I was looking for it earlier, and I couldn't find it. Um, Psalm... To 87. Psalm 87. This is one of my favorites. Psalm chapter 87. And verse 6. The Lord shall count when he writeth up his people, that this man was born there. So when God makes his records, he records everything. And he even takes into consideration in the judgment where we came from. He takes our background into account, our family's environment, our social situation. He takes it all into account in the judgment. That's that to me is just like amazing. I, I love this verse for that, for that reason, how it shows that God takes everything into account. N nothing can be hidden. In 1 Corinthians 4 verse 5, it says, he will bring to light what is hidden in, the dar in darkness and will expose the motives of men's heart. There aren't any erasures, any cover-ups. People can fool their friends, even their families, but no one can fool God. He reads the heart. Matthew 16, verse 27, we're told that when Jesus comes, he will reward each according to his works. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 27. And and this, I think, 
comes back to an Old Testament theme. This is a theme that we find all the way from the very, very beginning of time. And it's, a, and it's this idea that it's the other half of the great controversy. So I think the first half of the great controversy story is the origin of evil. Where did sin come from? It's the story of Satan. It's the story of how sin came into this world and how Christ is, came as our savior. However, there's, there's an end to the story because there are situations during this period of sin that are unfair, that are un unjust, and that just don't make any sense. I think this is particularly true when we consider um, when we consider people like Cain and Abel. You know, Cain killed his brother Abel. He was the first murderer. Although John says that that Satan was a murderer from the beginning, because um, he would have murdered God if he could have. Cain was the first human murderer, yet we find that God put a hedge of protection about Cain so that nobody could touch him or kill him, even though his life was, even though he had to flee for his life. So it was that Cain was protected, lived a long, healthy life, had like three to five wives easily, had a ton of children, big family, probably didn't live perfectly happy, probably had his fair share of sorrow, pain, misery, just like most of us humans do. But he lived this long and prosperous life compared to his brother Abel, who was righteous and who followed God's commandments and will. And, and Abel's life was cut short, just like that. He didn't get to experience either the, you know, the good things or the bad things of, of a long, healthy, prosperous life. So if, if we were to believe that, that this life was it, then, like Paul says, we'd be of most men most, we'd be of all men most miserable in 1 Corinthians 15. Because if, if we don't believe that there's a resurrection and that there's a judgment, that there's going to be a day when God sets the record straight, then God wouldn't be a just God. But he is a just God. He's a God that's going to set the record straight. I, I love the way that, that David puts this. In Psalm, let's start with Psalm chapter 79, because we find this theme throughout the entire Old Testament. Actually, this is a Psalm of Asaph, not David. Apologies. Psalm chapter 79. We'll start in verse 5. How long, Lord, wilt thou be angry forever? Wilt thou be angry forever? Shall thy jealousy burn like fire? I think this is a veiled reference to a time of judgment, especially when you consider the context. Then in verse 8, it says, Oh, remember not against us former iniquities. Let thy tender mercies speedily prevent us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of thy name, and deliver us, and purge away our sins for thy name's sake. Wherefore should the heathen say, Where is their God? Let him be known among the heathen in our sight by the revenging of the blood of thy servants which is shed. We find the same cry, the vengeance of the, of the blood of the servants of Christ, crying out in Revelation. In Revelation, there's, there's, a pic, there's, a mental, there's, a, there's a word picture of saints under the altar crying out, how long, O Lord? How long? And, and, and this, this is, has been a cry of many of the persecuted of, of God, you know, through all ages. How long will this injustice last? How long? David, in Psalm chapter 73, asked the same question. Actually, it was Asaph again. 
David, uh, Asaph in Psalm chapter 73. Psalm chapter 73, starting in verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel. And if you, and if you don't, don't get any other passage, look at this one. Psalm chapter 73. Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped, for I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Isn't there... Isn't there a commandment, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his house, nor his lands, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Even his success, his, don't covet. And here he says, my feet were almost gone, my steps had well nigh slipped, for I was envious. I was envious at the foolish. I, I was jealous of the prosperity of the wicked. But, you know, their strength is firm. And it goes on describing how, how the, these are all prosperous. They are corrupt, verse 8, and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walketh through the earth. Therefore his people return... Therefore his people return hither, and waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. And they say, How doth God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. So up until verse 11 in, in Psalm 73, everything's going great, hunky-dory for those who don't follow God. And then verse 13 comes along. He's like, Verily, I've cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. For all the day long I've been plagued and chastened every morning. Here, in verse 13 and 14, no, nothing's going right for the righteous. <laughs> He's like, We're, this isn't even fair. There isn't even an equal amount of good and bad. And God makes the rain fall on the good and the, you know, and the evil, and the just and the unjust, but here, the rain's falling all on them, <laughs> and not on me. But we keep reading. If I say, I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of my children. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. When I tried to make sense of this world, when I tried to make sense of life, when I tried to make sense of why, there was so much suffering, so much pain. Why people got rich and wealthy and seemed to be happy, prospering by oppressing you know, their laborers, by holding back their wages, by, by being unjust. He's like, when I, when I tried to reconcile this, it was too painful for me. And I think that's where many of us stop. That's where, that's where so many of us get hung up. We get hung up on the hard lot of a Christian. We get hung up on the unfairness of life. We get hung up on how the wicked and evil can prosper so. This is the biggest reason that people tend to turn to atheism. Something bad happens, and they blame God because it's so not fair. And then we have verse 17. And the story changes. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. Here Asaph says, I didn't understand it. Trying to make sense of it was too painful for me. But then I went into the sanctuary. I went and I looked at God's model for the plan of salvation. And connected to the sanctuary, 
was not just furniture and symbols. There were, there were actual services. And there was a yearly calendar of festivals. The first four pointed towards Jesus' first coming, when he would come as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. The last three pointed to his second coming, when Jesus would come as King of kings and Lord of lords and redeem his people. However, in order to do that, in order for him to fully set the record straight, there was one day out of those days that was known as the Day of Atonement. And for the Israelites, that, whenever they said Day of Judgment, so when Paul's saying Day of Judgment, when Jesus says, you know, when Paul says there's going to come a day to judge the people, the Jews know exactly what he's talking about. They know he's talking about Day of Atonement. And thus it is in throughout the Old Testament scriptures, when it talks about a day of judgment, it's the day of atonement. It's the day when the people searched their hearts, humbled themselves, made everything right, and then came before God, and the sins were removed forever from the camp. It was, it was a picture of this heavenly blotting out of sin, of erasures from this record book. This, this picture was such a strong picture. And after that, there was another service, and it was the Feast of Tabernacles. It was a feast where they would dwell in booths it reminded them that they had been pilgrims, that they had been sojourners before they came to the land of Canaan. And it's a picture of how, of, of really the millennium, the time when we're in heaven with God and we get to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We get to feast with God in heaven. And we get to remember that we were once pilgrims on earth. You know, we had, we had once been strangers and foreigners and sojourners. But now we were going to be able to live eternally with him in heaven. The, the picture of these services, just like when you see this, you see that, that God makes up an eternity for all the injustice and the suffering that his people encounter and endure on earth. And for those who weren't part of the Day of Atonement, for those who refused to participate in the putting away of sin, in the humbling themselves, in, in the sacrificial system, they were cut off from the camp. They were sent out to wander in the desert or you know, sent out to wander as an exile forever or until they died. And thus it was that Asaph understood that even while they might prosper now, there would come a time when they would be cut off, when they would be cut out, cut off from the blessings of God, from the presence of God, and without the source of life, who is God, they would be cut off forever. And thus it was that he stopped envying the wicked. Thus it was that he realized God is just. He's going to make everything right. Good and bad. The consequences will eventually come. But in that day of judgment, in that day of atonement, We have a high priest who is seated at, seated at the right hand of the throne in the majesty of the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected, and not man. And again, we find again in Hebrews 9, verses 11, 12, 24, but Christ being come and high priest by his own blood 
he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. In Hebrews 7, it says, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is his job. This is his purpose. This is his aim. In the great day of atonement, even before, it was his role to intercede for us. In fact, he even started this work immediately after his ascension to heaven. For he says, I will pray the Father in your behalf. I'm interceding in your behalf. I will pray the Father and he will send you a comforter in the Holy Spirit. His work began even back then and continues even until today. And in the judgment, it's, it's our relationship and attitude towards Christ which determines our destiny. Because Christ longs to save us. He's doing everything he can to save us. And if you looked at the Sanhedrin, you know, for us to think that, um, you know, Jesus says the Father has committed all judgment unto the Son. So Jesus has been set apart as the judge. And we saw that when we looked at Hebrews 2 earlier. I think it was Hebrews 2, where it said he, had, he has set him apart by the resurrection from the dead? Maybe that was Acts. Anyhow, Jesus is the judge, but he's also our advocate, according to 1 John 2. But how does that work? It's difficult for us to understand, because in our judicial system, you have a prosecuting party, you have a defense party, and you have the judge, or the judicial, the panel of judges. In the Sanhedrin, you had 70 judges, and then your witnesses were prosecutors. So the witnesses be acted as the prosecution team. The judges were the Sanhedrin. And the defendant had a panel of 71 experienced defense attorneys. Because it was their job to prove him innocent. Except by incontrovertible witness. Thus it was that the Mishnah um, once said that if there was, if, there was um, if there was a conviction that required a capital punishment, if there was one capital punishment in seven years, it was a slaughterhouse. And the same could be said of 50. It was very, very, very rare for someone to be convicted of the death sentence in the Jewish judicial legal system, simply because you had to have three witnesses. The Sanhedrin was the defense team. In order to have a conviction, you had to have a majority of two that, that decided they were innocent, uh, that they were guilty, that the defendant was guilty. And if it was the death sentence, they had to walk home two by two, arm in arm, that evening thinking about any way in which they could exonerate the individual who was pronounced as guilty. And then the next evening at sundown, they would meet again, and those who had judged innocent couldn't change their vote. But those who had judged guilty were given one more opportunity to change their vote to innocent. And thus it was that, it was that the, the system was rigged, as it were, to find, out, find one out as innocent. Now, Satan is the accuser of the brethren, but Jesus is the judge and our defense attorney. And as long as we claim his blood, as long as we make him our Lord, he says, therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 and 33. 
you see, you don't stand alone in the judgment. If you have confessed your, to Christ, he will confess us before his father. If we are Christ, he is our advocate. Through Jesus, we will stand before God as if we had never sinned. Our records will show only the lovely life of our Savior, and we get credit for his perfect life. So friend, when the judgment in the judgment, in the time of judgment, there's nothing to fear. Amen. Yes, it's a time of soul searching. It's a time where we have to make sure that our hearts are right with God, that we're not holding anything in God's place in our lives. It's a time for him, for him to cleanse our hearts from sin by the power of his blood. It's also a time for him to stand in our behalf, to affirm before the watching universe our decision to follow him with all our heart and soul. He wants to affirm our salvation before the court of heaven. He longs for us to accept his sacrifice on Calvary. He longs for you and me to confess our sins to him so he can blot them out. He longs that our names should be written in the book of life. So today, would you like to open your heart to Jesus? Would you like to say, Jesus, I want you to cover me with your blood. I want your record to be the one judged in the judgment, not mine. Would you like Christ to step forth in the judgment and say, yes, this man, this woman, he, she is one of mine. I have forgiven their sins. I have canceled their debt. I have pardoned their guilt. Their sins are covered with my blood. Blot them out of the records forever. Is this your desire? Do you want to say, yes, Lord, take my life. I want to be yours. Why not lift your hand to heaven saying, Jesus, I want your record, not mine, in the judgment. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much for this day. Lord, in this day, you've offered us to be, you offered to be our advocate, our judge, our savior, our redeemer, our friend. And Lord, we want to accept your blood and your grace for our lives. We want to ask that you would cleanse us from sin, cleanse our hearts, cleanse our lives, and help us to reflect your love to those all around us. Father, write our names in the book of life. We pray, and by your grace and through your power, may they always remain there. For we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.